Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's pin is one of my many blue pins because I'm counting on a blue wave in just less than two weeks. Way less we're, than two weeks now. We're only 12 days away and all eyes were on Pennsylvania on Tuesday when John Fetterman and Dr. Oz faced each other uh, on the debate stage and made the case to voters about why they belong in the Senate. Um, Like we said, the outro, we're 12 days away from arguably the most important election of our lifetime, and Pennsylvania is going to be a key state for Democrats, and we have the perfect guest with us. We do. It is Giselle Fetterman, currently the second lady of Pennsylvania, as she is married to now Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. And he is, as you all know, a candidate for the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania running against Dr. Oz. Thank you, Giselle, so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're so excited. There's no better backdrop than being in a car because that's such a quintessential backdrop (laughs) being on the campaign. So we're so glad you could make it. Absolutely. And there's a a lot to dive into now about the 2022 midterm election and your particular campaign. But uh, before we do, I want to make sure that our viewers and listeners get to know you a bit better because you're quite an extraordinary and interesting person. Um, You moved to America with your mother and younger brother when you were just seven years old. You were an undocumented immigrant from Brazil. So talk to us first about that experience, why your family came to America. And I think you went initially to New York City, how you got there and how you ended up getting a green card. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, we left uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, um, a really beautiful city, a really beautiful country that comes with its challenges. So, you know, violence was a a challenge in, in our family and in our community and my mother, um, you know, had an American dream and really did not want my brother and I growing up thinking that violence was normal or something to surrender to or accept. So without English, without anyone in our family having immigrated here first, she came with all the courage in the world and uh, we landed in New York. We settled in Queens and my mom, who in Brazil had a Ph.D. and ran hospital, was now working as a housekeeper, wow. um, domestic worker, cleaning houses and hotels I was enrolled in ESL classes and, and our American journey, uh, that's where it began. Quite a, a wonderful story. And um, I, I just wonder if you can explain to us what it was like for you when you first arrived. Did you feel welcome here and uh, learning English? And how did you end up getting a green card? Sure. Well, um, you know, it was very cold. That's my first <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I remember the, the, the hairs inside of my nose freezing. And oh thinking, my <laughs> And I also, you know, for me, America was what, you know, uh, home alone looked like, right? The houses all looked the mm. same. That was kind of my expectation um, as a child. And, you know, I arrived into Queens, uh, very chaotic, very different, very cold. Um, but my mom really gave me the gift of perspective. You know, he, she made it like this was an adventure that we were on. And I'm considered a dreamer. So I was brought to this child by my parents as an undocumented person. So, um, you know, I said I came as a dreamer. I'm still dreaming today. Um, but um, after high school, uh, when I started college is when, you know, I received my green card. 
and uh, have been a citizen for a while and excited to vote in every election. I don't miss a single election up or down the ballot. That's the spirit. And has being from Brazil, how has being from Brazil impacted your perspective about America, immigration, perhaps foreign relations? So I think I see things as an immigrant. You know, I, I walk into conversations as an immigrant. I have a unique perspective and it's allowed me to do the work I do as an adult. I work with access uh, and surplus. And, you know, in my early days, we, you know, all my furniture came from the curb in New York. We, like I saw firsthand the waste and the excess that we had in this country. Mm-hmm. I remember being eight years old and being shocked that, you know, I came from a country where people literally were dying of hunger. And now we are throwing away all this food and this food could feed people. So I turned that into birthing organizations that now rescue and feed people and have uh, rescued over 24 million pounds of food through those efforts. Can you talk more about that? Because I think your work, um, well, let's go back. You went to college. Um, What did you do after college? I'm a nutritionist. So I worked with food justice and food access. I had a small nonprofit in Newark, New Jersey, uh, working with food justice. And then I had a small private practice where I was but you founded the organization yourself. So you went right in as an entrepreneur, so to speak. Yes, but always a fearful entrepreneur, right? Because I always had, you know, consulting work I did on the side. I was always scared to do it full time. Uh, now, years later, I, I do it full time. Mm-hmm. But I think entrepreneurs are amazing because it is a scary I had a mortgage to pay. And I was always like very nervous. And I think also when you've lived in poverty, there's always that kind of weight on your shoulders. Um, so I always had to be like extra safe. And- are there are there laws that would help? Um, I know that there are so many restrictions on food that is otherwise thrown away being reused for charitable purposes. Um, is there something that could be done in legislation that could help that? Absolutely. We're in the progress of doing that. I'm working with two amazing state senators to pass policy that would not allow perfectly good food to be wasted. Uh, We see this in France. We see this in uh, Boston. It has been done before. And I've always said I hated politics, which is still true. But all my nonprofit work, it exists only because of policy failures, right? And that's when I was able to make the disconnect. Like, these things I've created is because policy has failed and we've needed to fill gaps. Uh, So we can do better policy that... um, can things, make things work much, much better. And we've seen that in other countries in regards to food waste and food excess. And that is something we're hoping to do in Pittsburgh. So you mentioned that you hated politics, but now you're very much in politics because of your role on the John Fetterman campaign. I, I first want to ask, I'm curious, how did you meet John Fetterman? Sure. I, uh, I was at a yoga retreat in Costa Rica, and uh, unrelated, and there was one American magazine in the lobby. And I picked it up and I started reading it. And inside there was an article about Braddock and this young mayor who was working on this community that had been abandoned and all his efforts to revitalize um, and all the love that he was pouring into it. And that just something stuck with me. And I went home and really didn't think about it much more. But I loved the Brooklyn Bridge. I lived in New York and just thought it was the most beautiful bridge in the world. And then Braddock came across my radar again. And I learned that the steel that built the Brooklyn Bridge came from Braddock. And I thought, this is fine. So I wrote a letter to the borough of Braddock, sharing the work that I did in food justice and food access that I'd like to visit and just learn. And the letter ended up with John. 
who called me and I went to visit a few months later. Then he fell madly in love with me, of course. And uh, that's how it's been. <laughs> that's how I ended wow. up. So what a beautiful story. I love that. Albanian for 15 years now. Amazing. And- Go ahead, Joel. I was going to say, and of course, you're not just in Pennsylvania. You are the second lady of Pennsylvania, or what you like to call slop, <laughs> the second lady of Pennsylvania. You have three children and a rescue dog. My rescue dog oh, just rescues. came over. Two rescues. Two. Yeah. Oh, two. Okay. <laughs> I only knew about Levi. Right. If Artie, Artie is Levi and Artie, but if Artie sees this and we don't mention her, she'd be upset. She's so. going to be, yes, we cannot make her mad. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you have continued to do the work that you've described in terms of food justice and founding organizations, and you've, but you've done a lot more than that. And I want to ask you two questions. One is, as second lady, how are you using the platform that that gives you for advocacy purposes? And talk about some of the other things besides food uh, that you have been involved in. I, I read about one called Hello Hijab, which produces miniature hijabs for dolls to expand diversity in, in that way, which I thought was just a brilliant idea. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, I always say that with Responsibility, and I, I really do take it very seriously. So, some of my efforts as second lady, one has been uh, the census. I was the census ambassador and worked really hard to ensure we had an accurate count. And not to brag, but we had the the best uh, count in the history of Pennsylvania. So that was a really great effort. I got to travel to communities where they were historically ignored and undercounted, and talk about why they matter, why uh, they need to be counted, and. Had a great time doing that. Um, also with Lieutenant Governor, the position comes with this mansion. And we did not live, did not want to live in a taxpayer funded mansion. We were actually the only second family in the history of Pennsylvania to reject living in the mansion. And while we did not want the mansion, that mansion came with the pool and the pool I wanted. And the dream was to open this pool and make it a public pool, turn it into the people's pool and ensure that um, young people across Pennsylvania could learn how to swim and learn water safety and kind of work to right some of the wrongs. You know, historically um, swimming in America is very racist. Um, And usually when you look at drowning statistics that usually affects children of color because of lack of access. So we were able to open the pool, it became a public pool and uh, thousands of young Pennsylvanians have learned how to swim in that pool, have felt welcomed and embraced in that pool. Uh, Those are two little projects I've done uh, as second lady. I can't tell you how heartwarming that is, especially in this political environment, to see such compassion and just an unapologetic um, and, and unwavering advocacy for marginalized groups. So just thank you for that. Um, let's transition into the campaign um, that the entire nation really has its eyes on. Um, and that's a Senate race between your husband and Dr. Oz. Um, as our audience is probably well aware in May, John suffered a stroke that completely changed the campaign, I'm sure your entire family's life and your life, and it put you also in a new role. Describe to our audience, um, what was your role before the stroke and, and since then on the campaign? Yeah, I mean, I'm a supportive spouse. I've been before the stroke and, and, and still am. And, um, you know, I got to accept the nomination. Don, John was in the hospital. Uh, he learned that he won all 67 counties while in the hospital. So I had to fill a, a small need for a small period of time. And I was happy to do that um, for him. It was no question. 
um, but I'm not needed anymore. Uh, I'm still continuing to just be a, a big support. I believe in his policies. I believe in his moral compass. And I want a decent, a good, a kind, an honest senator. So I will work as hard for him as I would work for a candidate that was very much like him, if there existed one. No, for sure. And so talk about maybe your personal feelings dealing with John Stroke and how you were able to manage that in public or how you kind of grappled with that. It was very hard. I just knew I had to get through each day. Um, I think I'm very good at survival. I lived in survival mode for many years as an undocumented person, having to navigate, you know, getting good grades and figure out a future that was just so unknown. So I think I'm good at survival, um, but supporting someone you love, someone that's good, that's not hard. That part is easy. Um, but managing everything else was was challenging. We have, you know, kids and the dog and something that so many families get to do privately, which is heal. He's had to do it very publicly. Um, so it definitely has been challenging. I cry a lot. Uh, <laughs> and that helps. <laughs> you know, my father had a stroke and I know how hard it was to do it privately. As you mentioned, you've had to do this very much in public, and John has had to be very much in public before he's completely healed, even though the prognosis seems to be very good that he will completely heal. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple questions. One is, what's your message to other families who are going through this? And also maybe a broader question about the Americans with Disability Act and accommodations that are necessary and why that has become, I think, an unfair, um, I don't know, accusation is not the right word, but why John has been attacked for using what anybody else would use who has a temporary or permanent disability. I mean, if someone were um, deaf, they would use uh, some kind of visual thing that they could read in order to answer questions. So I, I just, I'm very disturbed by how uh, the public has reacted, but even more so the press. And so I, I'd like to talk to you about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, so first to the families, you know, we are just one more American family that's going through a health crisis. There's millions of us across the country. Um, we know exactly what you're going through. We're going through it too. And, you know, one out of four people will go through something huge like this month alone. And that's that's the part of being human that comes with the territory. Um, but I think we understand it uh, very closely. Uh, so we're in a very unique position. I think this makes John that much more the people senator and that much more relatable um, because our family is going through the exact same thing. Um, as for media bias or ableism that we've seen, you know, just rampant. I don't know if it's lack of exposure or lack of education. I think the media certainly needs more training. You know, they talk about their investments in diversity. They really missed the mark, right? I thought this was such an amazing opportunity to really talk about this, right? Most people use accommodations on some level, whether that's glass, whether that's how bright you keep your camera, you know, your phone when you're reading. These are all accommodations, you know, maybe closed caption is like a new thing to them, but I've been using closed captioning my whole life. I learned how to speak English watching oh. Mr. Rogers and reading closed captions. So, you know, maybe it's something we need to normalize. We need to have more of these conversations, but I thought this was such a great opportunity for us to learn as a country. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the media really missed its mark. 
Hey, Victor, you know, I have been raving about HelloFresh ever since I met you, basically. And I even gave a gift box to your mother, who is, I understand, now a subscriber and using it. And I'm sending you a gift box because you're now living in an apartment on campus. And I think it's time for you to learn how to cook and to have all the advantages of HelloFresh. What do you think about doing that, Victor? I think it's time too. you know, one of the biggest barriers for me, at least when I cook is the time involved and also just getting groceries. And so I think having a something like HelloFresh where you can just follow a recipe, have all the ingredients delivered to you at its precise amount is exactly what I need to start cooking. I think will make the process a lot easier and hopefully get rid of my fear of cooking. I'm sure that it will. Absolutely. And my mom has enjoyed it. Also, she has been using HelloFresh, I think, since February of 2022. And so um, she's a very, very big fan. And we are a HelloFresh family because of her. So we get it about twice a week. And uh, when I'm not there, she cooks. Uh, and when I'm there, she also cooks HelloFresh. <laughs> With HelloFresh, you can get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. So skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. And with cold weather looming, we're in the season where it feels amazing to cozy up and save money by cooking at home. That makes all the perfect time to experience the delicious taste and unparalleled convenience of HelloFresh. Their meals are fantastic, and you can have your pumpkin spice and eat it too, thanks to a rotating selection of fall-inspired items from HelloFresh Market. And from brunch kits to a fall dessert board, you'll find everything you need for all your favorite autumn occasions like tailgating, Oktoberfest, and more. We know you and your family will love them all. HelloFresh even works with your schedule. Their plans are flexible and you can change your meal preferences, update your delivery day, and change your address with just a few taps on the HelloFresh app. Imagine getting HelloFresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week, allowing you to enjoy their incredible flavors of the fall season right from home. Go to HelloFresh.com slash iGen65 and use that code IGEN65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's 65% off and free shipping. Remember, go to HelloFresh.com IGEN65 and use the code IGEN65 for 65% off plus free shipping. You can also look for the link to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit in our show notes. I really hope it shifts the conversation. And just going back to how you've dealt with this personally, how have you talked to your children about this um, situation? Because I know one of the most difficult parts about being on a campaign is the fact that it's so public and being so young. Um, how, how have you had those conversations with them? I've showed them the negative and I taught them that's who they will not become, right? I want them to be a force in the world, all the isms. I want them to be a, a force for good. And I've shown them like, what a story of triumph, like what a hero your father is, right? This man has allowed the world into this very personal space of vulnerability. You know, we are missing vulnerability in politicians. And if, you know, I, I want to see that in all people. I want to see humanity and 
um, I think he's shown what it's like to be vulnerable in public. And I think people are uncomfortable seeing that, but uh, it's important for you to see it. It's, this is happening. This is happening with your family, with your neighbors. This is what healing looks like. And whatever you're healing from, it doesn't look like a straight line. You know, it comes in waves and we should support each other in this journey. And I am just so proud of him. I mean, what, how brave he is and how courageous he is. And the fact that he is out there healing publicly to fight for my, my reproductive rights and for all women and, and for minimum wage and for all these things, he is a hero and a national American hero. So what you've just said raises uh, two questions in my mind and I'll go to the first one, which is, I want to follow up about media coverage, but then I want to go into some of the issues um, that he stands for and that have been very clear from the primaries on. I mean, he's just been very clear about who he is and what he stands for. But what what could, you know, as part of this advice to the media, how could they have done this better? I mean, I personally think that they should have been putting it in perspective. For example, to me, Dr. Oz's non-answers were more notable than your husband's struggling with certain words or saying good night instead of good evening. I mean, who cares about that? But the, the Dr. Oz sort of got a pass. And so that bothered me was that this wasn't um, holding him accountable and was raising the standard for your husband. What could they have done better? How should they have handled it? Do you mean in regards to the debate? The debate, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I've never had to moderate something. I'm sure it's challenging for them to do that as well. Um, but I think a com to a true accommodations have to include that there's a translation time, right, to, to read the words. You know, I'm, I wasn't part of those conversations. So I don't know, you know, that it was fully, a, a com you know, fully accommodated. I don't know. But I just think it's a hard environment. It's very fast paced and I get stressed out just watching it. So I, I can't really say, you know, what they should have been done differently. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you have to push on answers. I always, my dream is always that instead of a buzzer, you would just mute the mic. So you can't over talk the mic. Uh, I think that'd be great to see, or like a live fact checker, right? Because yes. Lied and lied and lied. It'd be Especially after what happened in 2020. Everything was a lie. Ding, ding, ding. That's not mm -hmm. true, right? I, I think that's that's my dream. Because otherwise, you just have one person lying nonstop, or in many cases, two people lying nonstop. Yeah. Um, fact checking would be a great part of a debate. I, I agree with you on both of those points and, and hope that debate formats will change. And I understand that there was a, a lot of negotiating about how the format for this would for the, this particular debate would be. Um, and it seems like the closed captioning didn't quite work the way it was supposed to. Um, was that a problem or is that being misreported? I wasn't at the debate. I was home with the kids watching oh, it. That was okay. part of the conversations. All right. Um, go ahead, Victor. Yeah. So one of the things that's really fascinated me, um, especially as a young person, I'm a part of this organization called Voters of Tomorrow, which has a group chat in Slack, and we talk about all the campaigns and their strategy and how they reach young voters is the Fetterman campaign and their digital strategy. Um, you know, last or a couple of weeks ago, they launched Fetter memes. They have so many innovative ways to reach young people. And I'm wondering if you can shed light on how the campaign has tried to really become this online sensation and some of the techniques that you use to really engage Gen Zers and, and my generation. 
Sure. I mean, we have team. Uh, you know, we I think are funny. We really enjoy, you know, having a good time with things. I think it's important to be very serious about the work, but I think it's important to not take ourselves seriously. And all you saw was like our life, you know, in a screen, in memes, in, in conversations and, you know, a great team. I think it's important to have folks um, of all ages and all perspectives working on your team. We have an extremely diverse and creative team um, and we have fun with it. And I think fun is missing in politics. Politics is many terrible things, but it can also be really good things, right? We can pass great policy. We could do hard things. We could have fun and be kind while we're doing it. And we really tried to, to set a new precedent of what it could be like, you know, dream politics. It could be fun. It could be kind. It could be effective. One of the things that's bad about politics has been the threats to candidates and even to poll workers. Um, has that affected your family and, and this particular campaign? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can speak for myself. Uh, I mean, I'm harassed daily. I wake up every day to two to three hundred DMs of threats or vulgar messages from, you know, QAnon and MAGA and you name it. That's, I don't want it to ever be normal, but this is my reality. I've had to go private on my Instagram. I've gone private on Twitter um, because otherwise you can't manage the noise. And I just, it's kind of sad. I just feel like who wastes their time doing this? Um, but unfortunately, that's that's where the noise comes from. And I've, I've found ways to cope and to silence and to meet it. Um, but I think that keeps many good people from wanting to run for office or get engaged because this is a reality they have to face. So how have you muted it? I mean, that would be advice, I think, that everyone listening to this, because there's no one who doesn't get subjected to some form, let's maybe broadly call it bullying or harassment. Uh, how, do, how, I mean, I personally suppress a lot and compartmentalize, but how are you dealing with it? So on Instagram, I've gone private, so I have to approve any new follows. And, you know, if Debbie MAGA 2024 go Brandon, I'm not going to get access. Um, and on Twitter, there's a great option when you post a tweet that you can allow only people you follow to respond. Oh. And that's been something I learned recently. It's very helpful. Um, therapy is also great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm an artist. I get lost in my art when I can. Oh. Um, and that is a, a great form of therapy as well. But I, I know that it's noise. And sometimes it's a pep talk. You have to go through it yourself. It's not personal. Right? Talk it, about your art. Uh, I'm a mosaic artist. So I make Wow. And so that is a great release for me when I can, when I'm not on the road or in the backseat of a car. <laughs> but I think telling yourself, reminding yourself that it's not personal, that it is, you know, something much bigger and scarier helps. Um, so I try to keep those positive voices in my mind all the time. I'm wondering in Pennsylvania, because it's such a, I don't know, it's a really swing state. How have you dealt with some of the more Republican voters and those conversations with them? 101, they're great. I mean, I win people over um, but because I'm not scared to have conversations with them, right? And I think once you're in front of someone, it's much harder to hate someone after you talk to them, after you see them as a parent, after you meet their kids, you know, so I, I don't write people off. I believe in engaging with people, even when I have really uncomfortable conversations, which happens a lot. And I come home and I'm drained and I cry the whole way home. And, 
you know, I've had people say, I think you're great because you do such nice work and my issues are with all the other immigrants. Or I've had people, I've had people say to me, well, you don't look like an undocumented person. What does one look like, right? And um, I get to, I think, push back in, in the best way I can, which is gentle, which is kind, which is with an open mind and heart. And I do know that people are the results of their environments, um, their vulnerabilities, the channels they watch. And I try to remember that they're human first and that maybe we can find a place that we can connect with. And I think we're successful a lot of the time um, in those conversations. The part that bothers me in having conversations with um, people from a totally different point of view, people who would say, well, you don't look like an undocumented, um, is that facts don't seem to matter to them. And I deal in facts. And how do you communicate information when people say, well, I just don't believe that? Or I totally believe that the machines flip votes for Biden. Sure. When there's no evidence of that. Right. Facts work much better face to face. They don't work online. Right. I think face to face is where you see humanity. It's where you're able to connect. And facts work much better when you're having a real conversation with someone, when you're willing to have these really hard conversations. We have events in the reddest mm -hmm. parts of the state. And we have these conversations. So we've never been afraid to not go anywhere, which is, I think, why John won all 67 counties overwhelmingly. Um, so I think a lot of Democrats historically have just written people off, right? Like they're all voted for Trump and that's we're not even going to go there. But I think it's important to go there. It's not easy. It's not always fun. Uh, but that's, I think, how we find how we get to unity is trying to have those conversations. What kind of crowds do you get in those red areas? Hundreds of people. I mean, hundreds of people. We had a rally in, you know, I want to say Indiana County. We had over 500 people. I mean, this, these are red, red parts of the state. Pennsylvania is a very purple state. Most of our counties are red counties. The big counties tend to be blue, but we have more red counties than we have blue counties. And we go everywhere and we talk to everybody and we don't believe in leaving anybody behind. And what attracts a red, I, I would assume in those red counties, the people coming are registered Republicans who have probably voted in the last several elections for a Republican candidate. What attracts them to come? I mean, how do you get them there? What's what's the most effective advertisement you have? Don is a real person with a real record. And I think people connect to that. I think we are thirsty for authenticity. I think that, that humanity is missing in, in politicians. And with John, all you get is humanity. This is a real person. This is a dad. This is someone who cares about the state, who lives here. Uh, and I think that's, that's what people see. Every single day, someone stops us and says, I'm a Republican, but I'm voting for you. And so that There's something much bigger happening here, right? This is a real person who can connect with people. And I love how you slipped yeah. in and he lives here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> I, I know Jill has many questions about um, just the way that John's persona is perceived in public and his authenticity. But I, I'm curious about your time visiting Republican voters because you said that you've been there and you've had many conversations with them. What are some of the issues that they care most about? And what do you think maybe the Democratic Party is getting wrong about them and how they are shaping the narrative? They care about many of the same things we care about, right? They want their kids to be safe. 
They want their kids to go to good schools, to have opportunities, to be able to vacation. And that's where you meet on the humanity. Of course, we disagree on some key things like reproductive rights or, you know, common sense gun laws. But I think the family part, we can all relate to that. And we don't have to agree on everything, right? I think the only person you agree with everything on is maybe yourself, um, but that's okay. Uh, you have to know that this is someone who cares about you, who you believe will make right decisions that will help and support your family. Inflation, of course, is, is still a big one. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's they care about their families too, right? They love their kids as much as we love our kids. We can differ on a lot, but there are things we can connect on and we should work to focus on those things and find a common ground. And then that, then we can work from there. That's when you find a place of respect and you can have a real conversation after that. If you walk in guarded, it's not gonna turn out well. You know, you have to come in with an open heart. That is such good advice, but Victor's right. I did have some questions about sort of the persona of your husband as someone who is married to a man who thinks that if his jeans are clean, he's dressed up. Um, I'm amused that you said before the debate, I'm going to make John wear a suit tonight because of course he's known for his hoodies and his running shorts. And um, I, I, I loved when you said, I'm making him wear a suit, but how, how do, have you dealt with this unique perspective of who this unique man is and how it comes across to the public? <laughs> you know, John believes in comfort and I can't not... <laughs> all do better when we're comfortable, right? Um, he wants to normalize comfort and, and I can't get mad at that, but I've tried to change him. You know, <laughs> I wanted him to change his clothes and one, you don't change a person. And two, I could care less how he dresses. I much more care about how he's going to vote. Um, so, you know, I'm always dressed up. He's always dressed down. We find balance. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> That's but that's my way. relationship too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we have uh, 12 days remaining in the campaign and this election is very much about a choice between um, someone who is compassionate, who has thought through the policy, done the work and someone who like Dr. Roz doesn't even live in the state. How, how is the campaign looking right now? And what is your message to voters 12 days out? We're looking good. We're feeling Strong. We are almost there. Uh, we'd love your help and anything that you can do. If you go to mobilize John Fetterman, you can find ways to text bank. You can make calls. You can write postcards. There's something that fits everyone. I always say that, you know, I've door knocked for a lot of candidates in my life. And that was hard for me sometimes. Like if someone was mean, I would like start crying. <laughs> Probably not the best method. But text banking is something I'm really, really good at. I could do thousands a day. So there is a place for you in democracy. And it could look like writing postcards. It could look like any number of things. But, you know, call your friends who live out here. Make sure that they're registered. Make sure they have a plan to vote. Making a plan helps. Thinking about this is what I'm going to wear on election day. All of these little things we do help to ensure that we get out and vote on November 8th. Because our lives are on the line. Democracy is on the line puppies are on the line. I mean, everything is on the line. Yeah. I will say it's probably more comfortable to vote in casual wear than uh, <laughs> any formal wear. So John is setting a good example for that. Uh, we always like to end on on this question, which is, this is an intergenerational podcast. So we try to reach young people, everyone across all the generations. But what is your message to maybe first time voters uh, in this election and um, maybe how, how to engage those, those type of voters? 
Sure. Well, I'm so excited if you're voting for the first time. I remember my first time voting. It was a dream. I had waited so long to be able to. And what in, like, imagine how lucky you are that you get to be part of the process of deciding your future. You know, like, that's amazing. And I hope you enjoy it. You have a great day. Go out to lunch after. I hope it was, it will be a holiday one day. Um, but for now, you know, make this something that you do every single time. You know, you get to pick your future. We can complain about so many things or we can do something and you get to do something about it. So thank you for stepping up. Thank you for voting for the first time. Um, it's so exciting. And get a sticker and take a picture and tell all your friends about it. <laughs> and get all your friends to go out because if everybody gets one more person to vote, it's going to make a big difference. Turnout is key in this election. So everyone vote. And if you're a young person voting for the first time, the power is in your hands. Young people can decide the future of elections. That's how many there are of you. That's how strong you are. You can actually decide who our leaders are. So, and I trust you because you guys make good decisions. I'm faithful. Giselle, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. We had such a blast and we're wishing you all the best in this final stretch of the campaign. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you. you. So Jill, we're in the final stretch of the campaign, 12 days out. I'm wondering, first of all, what you thought of the conversation, how you think, think things are looking up, but what are you going to do for the next 12 days? Uh, to, to make sure that we have a uh, democracy still? Well, I am doing all the things I can to get out the vote because I really do think this particular election, not just, actually not this particular, I think all elections come down to turnout. And, I, you know, I'm surprised that things like the Dobbs decision seem to have faded. It, you know, a few months ago, that was the driving force that was going to make a difference in the election. And now it's like sort of past and it shouldn't have because that is a, uh, a forecaster of other bad things. I think you've tweeted about and talked about that the Dobbs decision itself says, oh, well, maybe contraceptions will take away. Oh, maybe gay marriage will take away. Oh, you know, we don't know what else this court is going to do. And so I think that we need to make sure that we have a Democratic House and Senate to protect us against what might otherwise be coming. And the Republicans don't have answers to any of the things that bother me. They, they for some reason, people think they're better on the economy. But if you look at history, our best economic times have always been under Democratic presidents and Democratic Congresses. So don't be misled yeah. by this uh, nonsense. Yeah. And uh, what is Voters of Tomorrow doing? So Voters of Tomorrow is continuing to engage young people. We're doing phone banking, text banking across the country and competitive districts where young people are in just really trying to mobilize the youth vote. But you, know, you said something about the economy, and I actually read something recently that I found shocking, which over the past 100 years, we apparently had 17 recessions. And out of those 17 recessions, only four of them were under Democratic administrations. 13 of them were under Republicans. So um, there, there, you know, like Republicans may say that they're good at the economy, but history would prove otherwise. And, you know, you mentioned the Dobbs decision and how Republicans are responding and how the American public is responding. But one of the things I thought was so just 
horrible about Tuesday's debate and how Dr. Oz responded was he thought that the decision <laughs> for an abortion should be between a woman, her doctor, and the local elected official or politician, which is, I mean, saying the quiet part out loud, but it's, I'm, I'm also surprised that the Dobbs decision is a little bit waning. And um, I just hope in these next 12 days, we can make that really clear to people the stakes that are involved in this yeah. election. Hopefully that influences people to go out and vote, but also um, the economy. People should see, I mean, gas prices are going down and they're not really the fault of actually either party. It's the fault of world uh, events. Yeah. Yeah. And that can't, it won't be controlled if the Republicans take over. Yeah. I've seen it many times. I've lived through this before. I know. Uh, but please, everyone listening, um, you heard the answers of John Fetterman and Dr. Oz in their debate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know which side of that you're on. You know what John Fetterman cares about and what Democrats in general care about. And I, I don't get how people don't understand that their yeah. own self-interests would yeah. be better served that way. So please take into account what the real policies are and get yourself to the polls. Early voting is opened in almost all states. You can do it. And you can also volunteer to help do phone banking, to do texting. Do it from your home. Do it for an hour. Do it for 10 minutes. Do it for five hours. However long you have to spend democracy is in the balance right now and all the election deniers who are on the ballot must be defeated absolutely and and uh one of the things that giselle said that i thought was so important i think maybe worth discussing in the time we have remaining is um making a plan to vote i remember in 2020 when i was um organizing on the biden campaign one of the things that the campaign kept on telling us was make sure that every single voter that you talk to has a plan to vote a concrete plan to vote before election day because it really helps in terms of committing someone to actually doing the vote so jill what is your plan to vote or have you voted yet or what when do you plan to vote and how does that I, look like for you i am voting next monday so you can check in with me next monday that is my husband and i um have our plan set for that um so i look forward to that i i always like to vote early uh also i will be uh, in Minnesota on November 8th. So I can't vote on election day. Um, and Evanston, where I live, is a great community and there's a huge uh, turnout for early voting. So that'll be, uh, you know, fun. But I think Giselle said so many interesting things. She is such an interesting person. Her nonprofit organizations have done amazing work. She's quite an effective leader and she would be a great Senate spouse. Uh, she would be a great first lady of anything, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> whether it's president or uh, governor, whatever. Um, so I was very impressed with her and very glad that she was our guest today. I agree. And, and, and you know, this conversation, I feel like in terms of voting and our plan to vote, I'm voting uh, by mail. And so we have these two different forms of voting. Oh. You can vote either by mail, early, in person. There are so many different choices at your disposal. So um, what, however you like to vote, you can vote in this election, but just make sure you do it. And I agree with you. Giselle said so many great things. What's your plan in terms of when are you mailing in your ballot? So I actually just got my mail-in ballot yesterday, and so I uh, haven't filled it out yet, but I'm planning to spend tomorrow filling it out because I have no classes on Friday, and I'm planning to get my booster uh, tomorrow. So I'm 
planning on clearing out my Saturday because who knows what the side effects will be. But um, so I'm going to plan to fill it out tomorrow and then mail it first thing on Monday. Excellent. Uh, you reminded me that I need my newest booster. I had one before I went to um, Europe and Africa, mm -hmm. but it was before the Omicron variant booster existed. And I am now eligible because you have to wait a certain amount of time after the other booster, but I'm now eligible. So I'm going to go for that booster. Yeah, I it mean, should be gotten before it gets too cold because yes. you want it to be at its most effective when the weather gets even colder. Exactly. And and getting boosted and, and getting vaccinated, especially now, is so important. I uh, think I told you this, Jill, but just for our audience, there was this uh, White House um, briefing on the current rate of vaccinations. And if we are on pace right now, we are going to be looking at a very, very grim winter. So um, if you haven't gotten boosted yet, get boosted. Or what, if you're not eligible yet, when you become eligible, get it immediately so that we uh, can all stay safe and healthy. Thank you for being with us today. We hope you enjoyed Victor's and my conversation, but also our talk with Giselle Fetterman and uh, that you will go out and vote and that you will subscribe so that you don't ever miss an episode of iGen Politics. Absolutely. And you can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Politicon. We're here every week, so make sure that you subscribe and you hit the bell for our weekly notifications so that you don't miss an episode of iGen Politics. We're 12 days away from Election Day. If you haven't voted, vote. Don't worry, we'll be back next week, uh, less than 12 days uh, before Election Day to remind you again to vote. So um, please tune in next week and every week after that. Again, you can see us or youtube.com slash Politicon. Hope to see you next week. And thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics.